You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, Claire O'Brien. I'm a nurse practitioner, and I'm here with Dr. Connie Gill from Medical University of South Carolina. She is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences in in the OBGYN department, and she is the director of Reproductive Behavioral Health Division. Um, She's been at NUSC for about 10 years, and most of you are either women or women in medicine or know a woman or care about a woman, and so I am super pumped to talk to her today about basically anything that has to do with women's mental health and all all the things because we all need all of that right now. So hey, welcome Dr. Gill. How are you? Hey Claire, good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for doing this this morning. I know you're incredibly busy, so I'm um, honored for you to be here. Well, thanks for having me. No, I'm excited to talk with you. Well, so tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you ended up in Charleston. Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Connecticut. I went to mm-hmm. Connecticut College undergrad. Um, after college, I, I worked in, uh, at Boston and at Mass General Hospital um, doing clinical research in psychiatry mm-hmm. and just fell in love with it, decided I'm going to go to med school and become a psychiatrist and do clinical research. So I uh, went to med school, uh, did my psychiatry residency training at Yale, and then mm-hmm. came to um, Charleston because my husband actually matched into a fellowship at mm-hmm. MUSC. And so that mm-hmm. was a little over 10 years ago. And came here. It was just a great place for us personally and professionally and have been here ever since. Yeah. Awesome. What, what made you choose particularly women's health and the, the peripartum issues that you deal with? Yeah, I, you know, I, I've always been attracted to, to women's health, um, mm-hmm. but why I kind of started focusing in on this population is just recognizing uh, what an unmet need there was um, for right. women that were struggling with these problems during the peripartum period. And, um, you know, 10 years ago when I, when I started doing this work or 15 years ago in my residency training, it was really interesting. So mental health providers and particularly psychiatrists, when, when their patients became pregnant, they were no longer their patient and they passed off the mental right to the obstetrician right and it was like we're not prepared for this like what exactly exactly and so it just felt like no one was really owning that patient and um it was tough because like the literature back then too around you know what's safe to do in pregnancy and breastfeeding and how should you treat but it was so limited and you know what was out there um, was hard to interpret and so just you know with my kind of research background I felt like I could help translate that to clinical care so women could make, you know, informed decisions about what they were going to do with their mental health during this time. Well, I didn't even realize until recently I was um, doing a podcast with two male doctors. And so I was just kind of looking into the background because that was relevant to what we were talking about. And I was like, oh my God, in my lifetime, women were not, I didn't know that women were even included in in clinical trials because they might be pregnant or nursing. 
So of course we didn't have any data on that because we weren't even included until what the night is it the nineties. Yeah. So there was about a 15 year period where any woman of reproductive age was not included in clinical trials. So we have this gap of, and it was during the eighties and and early nineties where we, you know, pharma actually had a number of medications coming out during that time for a lot of different conditions. And we knew nothing about how they affected women in that reproductive age range, which is huge, you know, 13 years old to, you know, 50, to 53 years old. So, right. Um, right. So yeah, so there is certainly a huge emphasis um, now in, in women's health and women's research um, to have more inclusion of women in these studies and use sex as a biological variable in, in yeah. all of our studies. So um, what I, I didn't interrupt you earlier, but I was like, oh, wait, people may not know what does peripartum even mean? Oh, yeah. So um, we refer to that as the the window of time um, that includes pregnancy and the postpartum year. So we say kind of the peripartum um, time period. So anything that's happening around before, during, before, during or after pregnancy, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's not necessarily even postpartum depression, but I mean, you deal with women across the, the lifespan as well. Mm-hmm. Well, so actually in our program right now, we, we really focus in on that peripartum period. Um, mm-hmm. I would love to expand, expand eventually to include all women, mm-hmm. um, but because we do a lot of clinical research as well and a lot of education, we needed to kind of uh, narrow in. We, yeah, we do do a lot of, yeah, we do do a lot of PMDD consults too. Um, so that I think is um, you know, as, as far as we go. Let's talk about that first. What is PMDD? Sure. So um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder um, affects about roughly 5 to 10% of women. Um, and this is where about 7 to 10 days before someone's period, um, they have pretty extreme mood symptoms um, mm-hmm. and physical symptoms, um, and as well as, you know, kind of changes in the way they sleep and their appetite. And it's it can be um, actually quite severe. So people right. feel pretty distressed, you know, they are lashing out at their partners or other people. Um, it's really causing a lot of impairment. Um, some and people like, have, are you sure that's not normal? Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> but it's not apparently. Sorry, yeah. I, mean, I think, no, no, I think you're totally right. I think that women, all women, not all, the majority of women <laughs> experience some PMS for sure. Right, right. Um, but it usually doesn't, you know, impair your functioning or um, right. ruin your relationships or things like that. Maybe occasionally, but I mean, not, yeah. not to the extreme when it's, when it's actually premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So five to 10%, that's a pretty big chunk. I mean, that's one out of one out of every year, 10 friends has a significant enough time with their around, I mean, seven to 10 days before your period. That's a lot. That is what a four 20. So 25% of your year is taken by this significant hormone roller coaster. I mean, what, what's going on there? Right. No, I think that people really don't um, appreciate the impact of that just because it is frequent and chronic. Um, So the good news is that there's some good treatments for that, for sure. Um, So Mm -hmm. our 
the first thing that people actually really should do, though, is um, kind of prospectively evaluate their um, mood and these symptoms in relation to their menstrual cycle, because it could just be an untreated episode of depression um, okay. that you're dealing with. So it's it's really kind of making sure that prospectively you're establishing that relationship between your menses and these symptoms. Okay. Um, and then from there, the first line um, SSRIs, so uh, Prozac, Sertraline, and um, Celexa have been the ones that have been studied. Mm-hmm. Um, and also venlafaxine, Effexor. So those are all great first-line treatments. Um, you can take them continuously, or you can actually just do them intermittently. So if you have like a good just sense- during that seven to ten day period, you can just. Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, isn't it? it it's really interesting, um, and it works really well. And it uh, has a lot to do with. Um, how SSRIs immediately work in our body. So they um, will actually, uh, they will uh, affect an enzyme that helps the conversion of progesterone to allopregnanolone. And so allopregnanolone is actually, um, it's it's a a hormone that we all have and it kind of increases towards the end of menses and then it drops off. And it's thought that kind of that abrupt change um, is what is kind of causing these symptoms in a subset of women. So- And people are going to ask because everybody wants to know this, but, you know, there's a huge subset of the population, particularly women and women in the wellness space who hear SSRI is the treatment and they're horrified. You know, they're like, surely there's something natural. Surely I can do something to balance my hormones. You'll see, my God, please don't go down this rabbit hole of hormone and health coaches on Instagram telling you that they can help balance your hormones because right. No, they can't. But, but just to, to say, just to put it out there, let's just ask, is there anything women can do if they think they might have PMDD before they, before they turn to a medication? Cause so many people are afraid of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's such a great point. And it's actually not about the hormone levels. It's actually, Mm -hmm. there's a subgroup of people that have an abnormal response to the fluctuation in hormones. So it's really about the fluctuation of hormones. And actually the first line should be exercise. Um, And there's been a few herbals that have been studied. The ones that probably have the best data are calcium and um, B6. So those are awesome first lines. I would start there. Okay. In any particular, I know, and this is not medical advice, but, um, you know, it's supplements are unregulated. So people can go buy whatever they want of calcium and B6, or do you recommend a particular dosage when you're talking to your patients? So for calcium, it's about 1200 milligrams. Um, uh-huh. And B6, actually, I need to go, I need to go double check what the actual dosage is Sorry, for I that. put you on the spot. No, yeah. that's okay. No, I'll grab that for you. We could redo okay. that. I'll, I'll fact I'll fact check it. I've started actually, I, I've loved doing this lately. I've started like Googling things and looking it up and fact checking like while I'm talking to the person and I'll maybe say it at the end. So I kind of love that. But yeah, we can throw it in there at the end. But calcium and B6. Okay. So exercise. I mean, I, we just can't stress exercise enough. And it's really hard because I do feel like as a, you know, as a provider, when you're seeing a patient that, you know, exercise would be beneficial for them. It's not about the weight, right? I mean, not, well, it's not always depends on what you're seeing them for, but, but for this, and you, you're nodding your head. Yes. But, um, it's just not about the weight. It's about the, like Elle Woods would say, exercise makes endorphins and endorphins make you happy and happy people don't kill people. Right. Like it's just so, it's it's never not a relevant quote. So, but this is true. I mean, what, what effect does exercise have on anyone, but particularly these women? 
Yeah. So, you know, the, the actual mechanism, why this works, I mean, that's not really clear. Um, but I think what we try to emphasize with our patients too, it's like, you don't have to dedicate an hour and go to the gym and make this a whole production. I mean, you can do these, you know, intense, you know, kind of not, not even that intense, but you know, enough to get your heart rate up 10 minutes, um, of something, um, just to change your physiology a little bit. I yeah. also think it just, you know, it helps people, it reduces stress. And so if you're trying to kind of mitigate or moderate a, a bad mood, if you kind of reduce your stress, you have more energy to do that, you know? So yeah. I think that's kind of, it helps yeah. people, it increases their capacity to be a little more resilient to whatever's yeah. being thrown their way. And you sleep better. And I mean, it's just, exactly. there's a whole host of benefits that come with, with exercise that really have nothing to do with, with your weight. I mean, that is an added benefit if we can decrease adiposity in patients, but I I feel like we've kind of almost, the pendulum has almost swung the other way. And now we're vilifying, you know, talking to patients about, about exercise when in reality, it's, it, it may not have anything to do with their weight. It's just so beneficial for almost everything. Exactly. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So how do women know, if they have PMS, that's normal PMS, which PMS, and it's all sucks. I mean, let's just say like, none of it's <laughs> awesome, but how do you know if you have PMS versus PMDD? Uh, so it really has to do with the impairment and functioning. So how is this impacting your life and causing mm-hmm. distress? So if you're, you know, getting in arguments with your partner every time, uh, every month during around that time, um, before you get your period, or, you know, you're, it, some people get um, what's called hypersomnia. I mean, they're so exhausted. They can't yeah. like get I their work function. done. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, or just, you know, cognitively, they can't feel like they can't get their work done or take care of themselves Ugh. or their kids. Yeah. yeah. So that's really about impact rough. on functioning. Yeah. That's, and, and is there any type of, I'm just thinking about, you know, IUDs and birth control and all of that is, is there any of that that plays a role in this? Like if you don't have a period anymore, you still are going through that cycle of hormones or, or do any of the birth controls kind of help alleviate that? Yeah, absolutely. That's actually one of the treatments. And so, um, especially if somebody's come and saying, I, I would actually would like some form of birth control and I have PMDD, we're going to, we're going to start an oral contraceptive pill, um, and typically just leave it. So they're not having, um, periods. And so that just kind of stabilizes the hormones. So you're not having that fluctuation of hormones, which is the problem. So, um, you can use just some really low dose, um, um, oral contraceptive pills. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off 
your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Um, okay, so let's talk about postpartum depression. Yeah, that's a good one, right? <laughs> It's a really good one because it is so common. So it's actually one of the most common complications of pregnancy and childbirth. Um, Really? Yeah. So, you know, more common than the things that we usually spend time on, like preterm birth and gestational diabetes and hypertension. Um, So estimates vary, but somewhere between 15 and 25% of women will experience postpartum depression. Um, And it's got just an enormous morbidity and mortality associated with it that often people are not aware of. Right. And it's, it's hard. So there's just such an enormous pressure to enjoy your baby, enjoy the time. Um, I mean, and I, I, it's just taboo because what you, I I mean, speaking from personal experience, knowledge of friends, all of this is women don't want to report not loving their baby, not connecting to their baby. I mean, that sounds like every instinct in you would go against, you know, not loving your baby or, and it doesn't mean you don't love your baby, but not feeling that instant connection and, bond or I mean just all kinds of stuff so how how do you how do you counsel I feel like recognition is so important because we don't know what we don't know and I and I remember after my first baby I mean I'm I'm a nurse practitioner I'm a healthcare provider and just feeling like I feel like this is all pretty normal but like no it's no it's not and I I didn't have postpartum I mean, anxiety, I think is normal. Just, you're just anxious, you know, as a mom with my second, but with my first one, I mean, it was weird. Like there were weird intrusive thoughts that like, when I say them out loud now, I'm like, what? But how do you counsel family members who may have no idea what, what to look for? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and given that these conditions are so common, it's so important that we're talking to women and families about them in pregnancy and the postpartum period, just saying like, hey, really common for women to actually experience mood disturbances, to feel maybe not connected with their baby. Intrusive thoughts are actually, that happens quite a bit. You know, a lot of women will come in and say, I didn't want to tell anyone this, but I I have this thought that won't stop that I want to kill myself or I want to, you know, throw my baby off a bridge or like just these thoughts that are coming in their head and and they're by no means do they ever want to act on them. That's why the thoughts are so distressing. Um, It's actually uh, for some folks, this is what we consider a postpartum OCD. So Mm. if you're a woman at any point in your life, if uh, you're going to have OCD symptoms, it's going to be in the postpartum period. Um, And raised in the air. I mean, I was a psychopath after my (laughs) You weren't in that, but that's how women feel about it. And it's so, it's, it just breaks my heart because it's something that happens. We should be talking about it. It's totally treatable. You can, you can get through that um, with both therapy and medication are super effective and women shouldn't feel badly about having that. You know, it's, it just is the, the shame that gets layered on top of this, I think is, is part of, part of what makes it so difficult. Well, I'm very open that, I mean, I've been on Prozac for uh, almost 10 years for anxiety. I love it. Um, And I think I ended up doubling 
because I'm, I'm on like 10 milligrams. And so I think I ended up doubling my dose at some point during the postpartum period. But I mean, I remember a friend of mine is a, as a, um, a counselor and I was talking to her one day and I just, I was like, I am having chest pain. I can't breathe. Like I was having just multiple kind of not panic attacks, but panic feelings throughout the day. And so she's talking me through it. And I realized, and it's like, you feel so dumb in hindsight, like, duh. And I, it was every time I was going to nurse because I had to have like the pillows had to be in the right place. Like I had to have my water next to me. My phone was right there. I had to, you know, like swaddle the baby in a certain way so that she wouldn't like, you know, bat my hand, you know, bat my boob out of the way. And like all these things had to be perfectly aligned in order for me to nurse, you know, and then I don't want to have this app with the timer because she's got to feed a certain amount of time on each side and blah, blah. And she's like, okay, it sound, you know, like, let's talk about this. Like, it sounds like the nursing is giving you a lot of anxiety and, and just even the acknowledgement of that, that was why this was happening was like the weight, you know, the clouds lifted and the heavens part. And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. It's nursing. is giving me so much anxiety. I mean, I, I continued and I got through it and it was fine. And obviously, you know, then I, that darn baby, I ended up nursing for like 15 months because she had a million food allergies, but, um, you know, but, but it's still, and, but I had, I had help. I had resources. I was already on medication and I just think about the added level of pressure and shame that comes with stopping nursing because Mm -hmm. there was a big, you know, back to the pendulum. I mean, I think in the eighties and nineties, you know, formula was huge and, you know, nobody really breastfed because of the pain. And then now the pendulum swung the other way. And it's like, you know, breast is best, which, you know, gosh, what a horrible argument. I mean, it, it breast is, oh my gosh, I don't even know if we should have this conversation. I feel like I'm like, don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but yes, there are so many things we can, you know, say like it is best for X, Y, and Z, but it's not best when it's ruining the mom's life. You know, it's, it's not (laughs) because you can't be a good mom if you're a complete nut job like at that point you know quit quit I mean right it's hard it is so hard and it you know uh, what is layered on top of that is that we don't actually as a society support this right so in order for you to be able to breastfeed and exclusively for that long we would have need to have paid maternity leave in order to do that right Right. we don't have the structure and support to actually do that and then we're going to make women feel badly about that that they haven't been able to be successful do Doing that when we haven't given them the resources or tool to. Right. So yeah, it is really, that's the whole other level. And yes, if, if breastfeeding is making you miserable, that is not, that's not, uh, you're not going to get a benefit from breastfeeding for the baby if mom is miserable. Yeah. And I, and I, I'll say, I mean, uh, kudos to my attending who I just, you know, couldn't have been a more wonderful, supportive boss, but I, I was able to take 14 weeks and I was paid because I'd, you know, I've been at MUSC for long enough at that point that I'd saved up enough, um, you know, vacation and FMLA and they, but even to do that, you know, he had to approve it and, and all of the steps. And then, then when I went back, fortunately, you know, I had like a private space to pump and there was a fridge and, but I remember at six weeks, I told my, my husband, Ed, so and he's a physician and obviously trained with many women that, you know, had babies during residency. And so at six weeks, I told him, Hey, this is when your female colleagues had to go back to work. And he, it blew his mind because it was like, he'd never thought about it. And at that point I'm like, 
you know, still every, it's, you know, you're still getting engorged. I had mastitis 87 times, you know, I'm like barely putting on pants at that point. And you got to go back to work as a, as a training physician. It's, it's cruel, but then be expected to haul your pump around the hospital or wherever you are. Hell, you may work at Burger King. I mean, you think they're going to support you like in all this? I mean, it's a joke that we expect women to, to do this and to function like this and then make them feel bad because they stopped breastfeeding. Right. Right. And you know, the reality is there's a lot of women going to back, back to work after a week. I mean, just uh, because they, they need, it's, it's a financial issue and they need to have income and um, right. So could you imagine after having a baby or a C-section going back to, to work the next week? I mean, it's really, it's cruel. And I, I really don't think people truly understand and have the perspective um, of what we're actually doing to these women. No, I mean, physically, and, and it is, it's so different with, with sometimes for, with subsequent pregnancies, because your body has been through it and you're, you know, and, and for some women, now some women have terrible pregnancies. The second one, they had a great one or terrible labors. And the, the first one was fine. But for me, it was just a different ball game the second time around, but birth number one, I mean, I felt like I had been put in a trash can and kicked down a flight of stairs. I mean, I, I was, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not trying to be dramatic or anything, but that's, that's just, but that's how it, it was fun. I love it. Love it. No. Right. Isn't it the happiest time of your life? Right. right. So I mean, happy. It was the best. Right. Mastitis is the best. So let's talk about mastitis induced psychosis. I had mastitis one time that was so bad. I called my next door neighbor, sweet angel. Actually, it's Dr. Cole, the the president of MUSC. It's his wife, Kathy Cole. And she, God love her. I called her and it was, Ed was gone. It was the Super Bowl. And my baby was four months old and I had mastitis and I had fever. And she was like, Claire, I don't know what you're talking about right now, but I'm going to come get the baby. Cause I was literally hallucinating. I mean, I was like rambling anyway. So it's, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's crazy. There is crazy stuff that happens. Right. And we don't even give women the credit. Anyway, so I know, but I mean, I, I do think that, you know, that myth about this is the happiest time in your life, it is still perpetuated. And oh, yeah. I don't know why, but effectively what it does is it keeps women quiet about all of this, right? Because what's right. wrong with me? Why can't I handle all this? You know, like it, it really, it really silences women. So that, I think that conversation needs to, to be opened up and women need to be talking about this more. Well, Chrissy Teigen, you know, whether people like her or not, I mean, I, I love, I think she's hilarious, but I think Chrissy Teigen has done a great job of publicly, and there are plenty of, of famous women, but, but she comes to mind because I think she's so vulnerable in such a physical way. Mm-hmm. She's so vulnerable with the rest of her family. Obviously her entire family is, is hugely famous. And then, and the struggles that they had, you know, to get there, they went through IVF and, you know, then they lost their third baby at like 20 weeks or something. I mean, truly kind of unimaginable, um, you know, loss, but I think she's done a great job of being really vulnerable about nobody wanted these babies more than me. You know, we went through 10 years of of infertility and then IVF. Um, and yet she's, you know, she still had PPD, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So people like that sharing, sharing their stories, it's, and you still see comments, you know, on social media, I won't get your thoughts on social media, but you know, you still see comments on, on her page from both men and women about, you know, you're, 
how can, you know, you're so you're lucky and you went through all this to have these babies and you're still not happy. Like that's it. That's, that's right. the problem. Right. Right. Well, yeah, because they think it is about like just being happy because of your circumstances where this is actually a disease. We wouldn't be saying to a diabetic, like what, what's your problem? You can't control your blood sugar. You know, (laughs) this is not about like just an unhappy mood. It's about a a disease. That's very real. Gosh, perfect analogy. Yes. Like what's wrong with you and your type one diabetic blood sugar? Like, come on, (laughs) come on, just work on that a little harder. Together. Man. Um, so what about, um, I get, I get asked this a lot and, and always defer cause I don't answer medical questions on Instagram, but, um, what about medications during pregnancy and breastfeeding? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question and a topic that is what we deal with a lot. So, so what we help women do is really understand um, what does the literature say around the risks of the untreated illness and what does the literature say around the risks of these medications and what's the risk for this individual not being on these medications um, and what's the risk and benefit of being on them. So we're kind of just weighing both of those things. So, you know, in general, what the literature says is that if a woman is depressed or anxious throughout pregnancy, um, she is you know much more likely to be smoking, taking over the counter medications, just lots or medications in general. So just a lot of negative health habits. She's also at greater risk for preterm birth and low birth weight and also having a C-section. Okay. Um, and also, you know, obviously postpartum at greater risk for having even worsening depression. Um, and then we know that moderate to severe depression and pregnancy and postpartum um, has a huge impact on a child's development. So we see everything from developmental delays to behavioral problems to academic problems as they get older and depression for themselves as they get older. So moms are anxious after birth. Yeah. So women that have uh, moderate to severe uh, depression or anxiety, so perinatal um, mood or anxiety disorders. So there's a huge risk of untreated illness. We haven't even talked about suicide yet. So, um, and we'll maybe get back to that, but I mean, that's a very real risk for these women. Um, so then we, we basically talk to women about, well, what, what's the risk for you of being off of this medication? Like as an individual, what happens to you when you're not on these medications? So getting a good sense of that. And then we took it, like, take a look at the risks of the medications, which is if there is any risk at all, there, they are very, very unlikely to increase the risk for miscarriage or stillbirth or fetal malformations. Um, The only kind of consistent finding with SSRIs is an increased risk uh, for preterm birth. Um, And it's not early preterm birth, it's around 36 weeks gestation, Um, but you're gonna have that risk with untreated depression. Uh, The other two risks that we talk about is um, risk of persistent pulmonary hypertension. If there is a risk at all, it's really small. Um, And uh, what we call neonatal adaption syndrome, which is we think is a little bit of baby going through some withdrawal after um, after delivery. But what that looks like is kind of an irritable, fussy baby. And we take care of them with comfort care. And it does not last more than a couple of weeks. It's usually, um, you know, a few days to a week. And it's like, who knows the difference anyway? I mean, these kids. Right, they're irritable and fussy anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, so transient. Then it's. I mean, I would think that the risk of that, uh, the benefit would outweigh the risk of a couple weeks of a fussy baby. I would. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's really just looking at that whole picture. And I, I do think that the most common question we get is like, is it safe to be on this medication? Mm-hmm. And the question really is, is it safe to not be on this medication for this woman? Um, and kind of going through that risk, risk uh, analysis. Let's do, let's touch on suicide. And I, I will put a, a note in the show notes, you know, for, for people that may, um, you know, may not want to hear this. We're at, I think we're about 30 minutes in, but um, cause it, because it is, it, it is tough, you know, for some people to hear. And, and I totally understand that, um, you know, I trigger warning basically, but what, um, let's talk about perinatal suicide. Yeah. So, you know, as we've had kind of in our country, a greater attention to maternal mortality, which in the United States is higher than any other developed country. Um, there's been a lot of attention now looking at maternal mental health and, in the states where they actually look, they measure suicide and they measure drug overdose and they follow women for the full year postpartum, mm-hmm. we find now that suicide and drug overdose overdose actually constitute to be the leading cause of maternal mortality. So this isn't this isn't kind of you know a, a rare phenomenon. Um, this is something that's very real and what we're dealing with. Um, so, you know, if, if women are having thoughts of not wanting to be here, um, the scariest thought to me is when women, uh, get to the place where they actually believe their family would be better off without them. Um, that's a really scary place. Um, and, uh, so getting them uh, treatment as soon as possible is, is what we need to be doing. Yeah. Gosh. And are there particular signs that, that you can, you know, tell people, family members, partners, spouses, whoever to to be looking for that would indicate that? Or I mean, is it just, just looking out for depression? And and certainly if someone has a history of depression or a history of suicide attempt, um, those are are certainly risk Mm -hmm. factors, but you know, not, not everyone um, has those risk factors that complete suicide. So um, I I think just, uh, looking for depression and asking women about how they're feeling and how, how they're really feeling and to not, um, to not be freaked out and alarmed by someone having thoughts that they just don't want to be here anymore. Um, because that's just a symptom of depression and there's good treatment for that. Um, What What is depression? I mean, even when you say look for depression, I feel like that can even mean a constellation of things that we may not even realize are depression. So what, what do you say I mean, what, what would you say, you know, look for depression? What, what does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah. So I would look for and ask about somebody's mood. Like, how are you feeling most of the day, nearly every day for at least a couple of weeks? So mm-hmm. the, the mood is pervasively um, sad, um, feeling hopeless, feeling helpless, feeling uh, edge really irritable. So that's one component, or it can be just, I am, I'm not interested in anything. Nothing gives me pleasure or joy. I don't I have no interest in doing anything that normally I used to like to do. So those are two pretty telltale signs. And you're kind of comparing to that to what the person was like before. So if you're seeing a pretty dramatic shift and it's, it's pervasive and it's continuing on a chronic basis, that's, that's, what's concerning for depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you may see things around like, um, just excessive guilt. Like I'm not a good enough mom. Um, Mm-hmm. Or just thinking, you know, that um, feelings of worthlessness, that sort of picture, mm-hmm. um, disruptions in sleep. So, you know, someone's incredibly sleep deprived, but they can't actually go to sleep mm-hmm. or they're sleeping all the time, like 12 hours a day. Um, those are those are pretty telltale signs that someone's experiencing some depression. Yeah. 
And then how do family members intervene with that? If you have a, a, a patient or a mom that's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm fine. Or, I mean, is there, yeah. can you call someone? I mean, what's the protocol for that? I feel like HIPAA is so clear in so many situations, right? But then when you have a person who can't advocate for their own mental health, I mean, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, reaching out to resources. So, you know, nationally, one of the best resources I think is Postpartum Support International, and mainly because you can go in there and you can put in your zip code and find um, people that specialize in this area in, in your area. Um, so in South Carolina, obviously our program is completely tailored to meet the needs of this population. So um, at MUSC, we have, have our program. And the great thing now is that all of our visits are virtual. So right. we can deliver care to women's homes, how we've always wanted to deliver care. And now we actually can. Um, so that's fantastic. So that kind of removes a lot of the barriers to care for people. Yeah. And, you know, some people may say, like, I don't want to talk to a psychiatrist, understandably, but um, just saying, you know, just, just give it a try. Just, you know, know, just try it out, see if it, if it's, um, if it's helpful and if it's not, then, then move on, but, you know, just at least give it a shot. And I think probably showing true empathy, you know, on the, on the end of the partner or whether it's a family member or a friend and just saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually worried about you, you know, and not making them feel like, Hey, you're not doing a good enough job right now. I mean, because that's not what it's about. It's, we're concerned, you know, and we just want to make sure that you get the the help that you need and the care that you need. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's the best approach. Man, that's, it's a, that's tough. I mean, I, in comparison, I feel like everything I had was, you know, so, so mild. I just, I can't, um, I re- I sympathize with, with women that are going through a, a more, you know, severe time and or don't have the support that they need. I mean, it's, it's a hard time. And like you said, I mean, we don't value that time and we, we don't um, support women in that way. And hopefully that, hopefully that will, will change. Um, but gosh, it's, it's rough. Um, well, man, this has been so awesome and wonderful. I and mean, I've loved talking to you and I'm, I'm just so thankful that you took um, some time this morning and I know this is going to help a lot of women. So thank you so much for the time. Oh, Claire, thank you. It's such a pleasure talking with you. And um, yeah, this is obviously not an uplifting topic. <laughs> and um, I just yeah, really appreciate Yeah, definitely. I just appreciate your, your time and attention to this. I really uh, admire what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Well, um, as always, guys, if you liked the podcast and if you like hearing information from healthcare experts, please rate, subscribe, share it, send this to your friends. That's how we get guests and how people find the podcast. So um, hopefully we'll keep doing this great series from MUSC and I'll talk to you guys in a week or two. Bye.